podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. On today's show, Ian and I are speaking with someone who has turned procrastination into success. My name is Tim Urban, and I am a blogger. I write long-form, stick-figure illustrated blogs on a wide range of topics on a sporadic schedule. That's kind of my best short answer there. Tim Urban is the man behind Wait But Why and is easily one of Ian and myself's favorite writers online. And as we find out in this episode, he's actually a lot more a business owner, all around creative persona, I would say. Very talented guy. Wait But Why is hugely popular. We're not the only two fans here. And this blog covers all kinds of topics from artificial intelligence to cringe-inducing realizations of our teenage years to misadventures on Facebook. It's just an interesting mix of wisdom and hilarity. If you're not familiar with Wait But Why, I'd highly recommend you check out a few of the articles before you listen to this. I think it'll give you some interesting context for the conversation. We'll be posting links to some of our favorite articles at tropicalmba.com slash wait but why. Is there anything specific about the articles for you that attracted you to Wait But Why? I think the reason initially why I was attracted to them, and I started reading, gosh, maybe two years ago even, was because they were long, honestly. And that's so rare these days on the internet to find long form content. And so I was like, wow, this guy's really putting a lot of effort and research and thought into these pieces. I can't wait to read the next one. Because a lot of times it's just like popcorn, right? But this is not popcorn to me. This is like, I'm going to think about it the next day and maybe a week from now. Yeah, it's strange to find, not only to find a long article on the internet, but to find yourself at the bottom of a long article. <laughs> this sort of particular genius on Wait But Why has been recognized by a broad range of people, including, and we'll talk about today, Elon Musk, who enjoyed the blog so much that reached out to Tim directly and asked him if he would have some interest in writing about some of the projects that he's got going. I don't know if you've heard. He's sending people to space. <laughs> Quite interesting. And so, yeah, Tim and Elon, they sat down. He interviewed him. And he wrote a series on what he's up to. It goes without saying, we were super pumped when Tim said he would be willing to come on the show. So here's some quick background. Wait But Why began in 2013 as a result of Tim's business partner, his name is Andrew Finn, agreed to give Tim a sort of sabbatical from their core business. Sort of like Andrew would hold down the fort. And Tim would go out and explore these creative passions he has. The main company they run together offers coaching for exams, like the SATs, that overseas students need to get into mainly U.S. universities. As the interview progressed, you'll hear, we began to realize that in some ways, Tim's journey with Andrew has some echoes for us. It's an interesting relationship that they have and how they negotiated their individual creative needs to be fulfilled while at the same time wanting and needing to run a successful business together. So we kicked off by asking Tim, who is Tim? You don't write a lot about yourself. So I'm curious, 
How would your close friends and family describe you? I think they would probably call me like one of their most kind of insane friends. Like I'm definitely the only one of them who like is pulling all nighters still at this age. And I'm very like excitable about a lot of different topics. And I get, you know, really into the things I'm into. And I am a massive procrastinator who's like kind of a child who's always battling that, especially when I do things like write. Since like, you know, in college, the hardest things for me were writing papers. And now that somehow has become my job, except this time there's no deadline to assist me in my vices. So they would definitely probably point that out, too. But they would say I really like what I do when I'm not miserable about what I do. I really love it. We've had a similar situation on our blog. I've gone back and forth about how we can be more productive and get more posts up and stuff. And it always sort of comes back to deadline for us. On your side, I noticed you know, you took away your deadline. So can you talk us through like what your thinking was about whether or not you're going to have a publishing schedule? The full story is that you know I started out and I said, I want to have a schedule. And I didn't think of it as a schedule for me. I thought of it as a schedule because this was a new blog you know, you're trying to get attention and you're trying to get people to come back after they come there. You know, if you're lucky enough to get someone there once and they like what you do, you have to make it easy for them to get hooked. And so the idea that I had about that was that you need to have consistency and predictability. So it was every Monday and Thursday is how it started. And I did publish every Monday and Thursday, sometimes late at night on those days, but I got it out every Monday and Thursday for a while. There were a couple times when I said to myself, you know, I, I'm just not ready to publish this yet. I need, it needs more days. I just wrote a note saying no post today, and I posted it after a week. But I noticed about maybe 15 posts into the project that by far the three, because it was the very first one too, the three most viral posts by far, I mean, not even close, were the three that I had spent more time on. So that was a clear signal to me, like, look, people aren't coming here for volume or quantity. They have sites that are publishing five things an hour. So they're coming here for quality. And why not go the full distance? Why not? I need to give myself a full week. Imagine just doing one article every week. That's my only job is to work on one post that week. You know, how good could they get? And so I said, OK, new plan. Tagline changes to new post every Tuesday. If you give yourself a deadline for me, I need like panic in order to actually, you know, really get stuff done on time. The consequences of missing a deadline have to be scary. So they were in that there were a lot of people that had started to read the blog and it was really kind of upsetting the concept of having a bunch of them checking on the day that you promised you'd have a post up and then it's not up. And then they're thinking they're being burned for trusting you. And those are the people who care the most who were like checking right on the day. So that was a pretty scary deadline. On the other hand, you know, it's a slippery slope. There wasn't like a clear cut off or oh, if you don't get it up by then, then it can't go up that week. It was just, you know, okay, well, you know, what time Tuesday? Can they get all the way to midnight? Oh, well, it's past midnight, technically Wednesday, but it's still the night. Remember the time, you know, last time I published at 5 a.m., that's kind of the morning. Maybe I could just go to bed and do it early tomorrow morning. And before you know it, it's got every post is going up Wednesday and then Wednesday night. And then some of the posts are going up Thursday and it's getting like pretty embarrassing. I decided to change the tagline from new post every Tuesday to new post every Tuesday-ish. The ish there just to make it clear, like it's not definitely going to be on Tuesday. How do you decide when it's done, though? I mean, through all this anxiety, how is it actually finished? When I was doing two posts a week, 
I kind of had to be done half a week, but there were some times when I didn't feel like it was done and just even having the option to go an extra half a week made me realize this post totally wasn't done. Any post I do, I can spend 10 times as long and make it a book. So like there's no clear time it's done. You can always work on it more, make it more thorough, better written, better drawings, funnier, all those things. So you have to just make a call on like the balance of that. And so for me, the week seemed kind of good, except the ish thing allowed me to start going to Thursday and Friday regularly. And then once you get to Friday, you don't, you don't want to publish really late Friday afternoon or on the weekend, at least not in my experience. I don't, it really hurts your traffic because everyone's sitting there reading at work. Once you miss Friday, you go all the way to Monday. And that happened a few times. But when it would happen, I often found myself with the extra weekend, I'd make the post even better. And when it goes up Monday, I'm not going to publish another thing that Tuesday-ish. Now, that's kind of the post for the week. So what just happened, I just posted once every two weeks just there. So I did that a few times. But again, I found that the posts that I ended up being the most proud of, not all of them, some of the posts I did in one week, I'm very proud of. I think that, you know, were real successes. But the posts that I think really... I could make an impact. Most of those that took longer than a week. Some of them I took three weeks. And so that started to make me say, you know what? I need to take this regular concept off entirely and just have a post be what it's supposed to be. Some posts will be done in four days. Some posts will be done in 40 days. And whatever it needs to be, it'll be. Which is a great plan, except it's a plan for a non-crazy person adult. So I took that entire thing off and changed the tagline to new post every sometimes. Which again, in theory, makes sense. Anyone who reads Wait But Why would get why I would say, you know, some posts need a lot longer than others. Plus, there's now a large enough email list that like, I'm not that stressed about, oh, they need to know when to come back. I can just email a big group when the post is done. But the problem is without any deadline now, it's really hard to get into that. You know, you'll, I'll research way too long. I'll just toil over the outline because if I had the panic that, oh my God, I have to have this post up in two days, I would just say, you know what, I have to move on. What's the best outline I can come up with right now? Let me go. And then, of course, the longer you wait, the higher the expectations become. People say, oh, this has been over a month. This is going to be an awesome post. Now you're really screwed. Now it has to be. Now you're saying, oh, my God, I have to do much more research. I can't. I just have to. And it becomes this horrible cycle. So I'm currently dealing with that cycle. But that's the very long answer to your question of why I took the tagline off. I still think it's the right move in the long run. But I think that I have a lot of like self-work to do before it's a move that I can still be as productive as I want to be with. I heard you say somewhere that you like doing things that people don't expect you to do. So now does it seem like you're expected to crank these posts out at your blog? And is there anxiety with that now? I think I like the concept of surprising people or keeping people like, you know, having just things be fresh and not seem predictable and trying to do things that are original. Those are all values of mine, which, you know, often add up to trying to, you know, do things that are unexpected. People expecting a regular schedule or anything or expecting blog posts, that doesn't bother me because that's a good, I worked hard to build that expectation. Like I'm proud and like gratified that there is that expectation, that there are people that even give a shit about what I'm doing and are paying any attention. That's really, really awesome because that's, you know, I blogged for six years before I started Wait But Why and very few people cared whether I posted or not. So I'm fine with that. And the truth is the expectation and the fear when you have readers that you're going to lose those readers, that they're going to get bored is a great driver of motivation and panic. So I don't have a problem with that. It's always taste, taste, taste. You're happy when I'm on my knees. One of the posts a couple of years ago I read, it wasn't a post, it was a page on your site. It was you on one side and Andrew on the other. And I actually like just kind of, I was like really resonated with me. I like scratched out the names and put Dan and Ian at the top. 
And then I started to see patterns everywhere I went. And I started, I just got you out Dan and Ian and I wrote sower and reaper at the top or harvester. I'm a little bit curious about Andrew and what the origin of your relationship with him is. And I know that you guys are running a company together and I have not heard that story. Yeah. Andrew and I met when we were five in kindergarten. And so, and we've kind of been like, you know, best friends ever since. So, you know, after college, I moved to LA to do movie scores. And then I procrastinated on that by diving into my side job, which was tutoring students. And we started kind of a small tutoring company. Then Andrew moved to LA kind of for other reasons. And he started living on my couch for a while because he didn't have a job yet. We just started inevitably kind of like talking about my business and the business ideas. And at some point we came to the decision to go into business together, see what we could do. It seemed like a really fun project to kind of be in like a strategic game with your friend. And it was, I mean, it was awesome. And so for five years, we kind of grew this tutoring company to a point where I was in New York, trying, you know, starting a New York branch and Andrew was in LA managing, you know, that side of it. And we started the niche we realized was a good niche because we started tutoring students online, international students who wanted to go to college in the US. And we just did that kind of because someone referred someone to us, but then we realized, oh, that's like such a need. You know, those students don't have any, you know, really great tutoring options for these tests they need to take if they want to go to these schools. That's kind of what we focused on. And that's still what the company is today. Just for context, Tim, to interrupt, how many like staff do you have at this company? What's the company look like? The company is called Arbor Bridge. And it's, I think, around 25 full-time like in-office staff, and then maybe another 25 full-time tutors, and then a few hundred part-time tutors. The in-person staff is mostly in the LA office, but there's a lot of people in New York, some people in London, and someone in Brazil. And so the full-time staff who are actually running the operation are, are in different places in some cases, and the tutors are all over the place. And we're still doing that niche. We're working a lot with mostly online tutoring, a lot with international students. And, you know, we've built our own curriculum now. And, and now we have this one employee who, you know, has just been so great. She was like, you know, one of our first tutors. She spearheaded the building of our curriculum. And now she's kind of become the CEO in a lot of ways. And, you know, getting a little into the, the weeds here. But like, you know, one of the things we got really good at in this is hiring and like seeing the potential in staff and elevating the staff that have the most potential. And, you know, it went from a game of tutoring and a game of trying to win over clients and referral sources to actually in the long run, it went to a game of staff and learning how to hire and manage and, you know, promote in the right ways and motivate and build a culture. And that ended up kind of what we did. I mean, the last three years while I've been doing Wait But Why, I mean, Andrew's most, most of his focus has kind of been on the really big picture strategy and also basically on building this kind of group of people who are able to, you know, run and grow this thing on their own, who are just, you know, amazing and work really well together. So that's where that's been. And that company's still going. Andrew's been running it since I started doing Wait But Why. And it's, it's going well. But he and I have kind of both as friends that trust each other and kind of as entrepreneurial kind of slightly ADD people, we've tried to like stay open and creative about what we're doing and take advantage of the fact that there's two of us. So like, for example, we both love podcasts. In 2011, we decided to start a podcast app just to see what we could do. So Andrew went and like, you know, led that effort. And then we ran out of money and we had made a bunch of like, you know, strategic mistakes and like how to actually build an app. But it was really like cool that Andrew could go do that while I could hold down kind of the fort at the company. And we kind of kept that in mind that that's always an option. Bring me to that conversation of you and Andrew having like you had written a blog that nobody enjoyed and you're sitting in an office saying, hey, would it be cool if you ran the company and I wrote a blog? Like, how is he going to believe in you? What's the concept? 
to rephrase the way I said it, it's, it was a blog that a small number enjoyed very, very much. So it was probably a thousand readers, maybe, maybe 500. I don't know. I didn't track stats that well then, but they were like obsessed with it. You know, they really liked it. They emailed me about it. And so it, there was a lot of hope in the blogging concept here, but I wanted to do something where I spent a lot more time on each post because what I, I was blogging on the side, it was a hobby. I would write like it on nights and weekends. I'd write, you know, I'd take, spend five or 10 hours on a post at most. And I thought, you know, what if I could spend 50 hours on a post? Every post, imagine, you know, what, what, what kind of blog could I do? Okay, so it was really born from, I mean, so 2011 rolls around and I'm starting to really like need to do one of my creative projects, not on the side, but in, as full time. So I was writing a musical on the side with a friend and I was doing this blog on the side and loved those projects, but they were really like each getting like an eighth of my time. But the, I was really passionate about both of them. I really cared about the, the, the projects. And so it was starting to kind of like bother me that, you know, business was so fun for a while. But I moved to L.A. in the first place to do creative stuff, you know, in the arts. And that was where my heart kind of always was. And so after, you know, for a while, I started to say I need to get back to that full time. I never really had done it full time because I quickly and when I moved out of procrastination, just quickly started doing other stuff. So I was like, I need to finally do something full time. And the truth is, in this case, having a business partner and someone who would go into it as a partner was helpful because I had accountability, A, and B, I had someone, you know, that would run the rest of what I had been working on. So I didn't have to. So it really, it's a very odd situation the way it happened. But I would say in my case, it happened. I'm not sure I would advise someone to do this because a lot of times when you, if you care about something in the arts and you dive into business, you usually don't come out, you know? And I think, you know, I got lucky that it ended up working out, but I think it was, it's a little risky, but the way it worked out, like it ended up being a situation that really was a good way to start a blog. So we were talking about, I said, basically said, I need to do something creative full time, like at some point in like the not far future. And maybe that means we have to like split as partners and I go on to do my own thing or maybe we can do something together and I don't know. And so we, we started talking about it. And you know, a musical is, you know, extraordinarily fun creative project, but it's not a good business venture. Even the best musicals other than the one like that takes the world by storm every five years. So now it's Hamilton. Before this was Book of Mormon. Before that, it was Wicked. Other than that, if you're that one musical, even the other ones that win Tonys, they just, they're not great business ventures. And usually you, and you spend five years writing them and you know, there's a good chance that it'll go on for only two weeks and get one bad review before, you know, so it's, it's a pretty tough business venture. And so that wasn't that appealing to Andrew. On the other hand, like the other thing that I liked writing was interesting because if you build a platform, a media platform, there's all kinds of like things you can do with that that are interesting business-wise. And it can also help your existing businesses. And there's a lot of like awesome reasons that's a cool thing to own. So that appealed to Andrew and it definitely appealed to me. Was there like a prototype post that you went to Andrew with and you were like, look, here's what I can do? Andrew, I mean, what I'll say is that it, what helped is you know, he knows me really well. He, as much as anyone, believed in me as a creative person. He was just as gung-ho about it as I was. He, he basically was saying, oh yeah, if Tim just puts his head down and goes full-time and gets into like psycho Tim mode, I'm sure this will be like, or something good will come out. I have great ease in relating to this situation because Ian and I have had a very similar thing in our story happen where essentially I said, hey, can you be the responsible one while I start this podcast and start writing and stuff? And he said, okay, you've got some leash, man. Now, one thing that happened in our relationship is every once in a while, I would get called back to the principal's office <laughs> and he would sort of sort of ask me like, hey, man, you know, is anything going to come of this? Are you going to make any money from it? You know, maybe you should try to do some marketing for what you're doing or whatever. I'm curious, did you guys ever have that conversation? I know now you guys have a lot more business traction, but in the early days, did you have those tough conversations, which is like, hey, how's Tim spending his time? 
Well, okay. So one thing about it is that in the early days, it wasn't as black and white as I'm going to do wait, but why Andrew's going to hold down and try to grow Arbor Bridge because we had such a great staff. Andrew could go like take some time out of Arbor Bridge and actually he was going to manage the business side of wait, but why that was the original idea. I didn't get my principal's office visits because of the business side. I got them because of my productivity pace. So we came up with the idea for Wait But Why the summer of 2012. That's a full year before the first post went up. So what happened was, you know, first it was, you know, six months of just kind of talking about the idea and like, yeah, that thing that's kind of like on the table. Maybe, you know, know, at some point I'm going to start that thing we talked about, you know, we've probably had. 30 of those ideas and, you know, 28 of them haven't become things. So usually they don't become things. But in this case, we really decided to make it happen. So I went to actually over the Christmas of 2012, I went to Easter Island for a month just for the express purpose of basically writing a bunch of posts that then I could, you know, start the blog and start the posting them. And I did. I wrote the very first post, Seven Ways to Be Insufferable on Facebook, which was a huge help to get the blog on the map. I wrote that in Easter Island and a few other things. And Then I came back and said, okay, I'm ready to go. It's January and spent another six months, half working at Arbor Bridge, half kind of figuring out how to like, you know, integrate your social media sites onto the blog and like designing, coming up with a name and coming up with like a a format really like, you know, very slow, very frustrating for me and definitely for Andrew. And there were a few times when he would be like, what the hell's happening with Wait But Why? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. There was definitely some of that. Then it started and for a while the schedule kept me on. But, you know, then when I started going, you know, taking longer and posting late, that would drive him crazy. I got calls in the principal's office for that, for sure. But what helped, of course, is that the blog started to really take off. If the blog had taken a long time to get any readers, I think that I would have been on a shorter leash with many more principal's office call-ins. For me, that it helped always that, you know, there were readers and that the thing was working. Although that also makes, you know, made it more stressful in some ways. It was like, come on, you know, you got to get these things up. So that's probably our main source of tension on, on that side. It seems like there's a lot of mutual trust between you and Andrew, and that's why you're allowed to go right. And he's seemingly still running this company. You know, one of the things that you can see online is your Patreon. And it seems like that's doing quite well for a blog. But I've got to imagine that that number pales in comparison to what the company that you guys own is. So how does that relationship work with you and Andrew in that, you know, he's putting in his time and he's probably creating more money than you are? You know, part of the idea was that a media platform can generate lots and lots of money if it's big enough in many, many ways. And we don't know all those ways. All we know is that let's build the platform, right? So that's kind of been our mindset is like, you know, there'll be plenty of ways to make money at some point. And it's just not, we know that's a long-term play. And we know that like a media platform can not just help with financially, but it can also help with if we start another podcast app, for example. I mean, nothing would have made that easier than having an automatic way to get like 50,000 users on the first day. It's a lot of value, you know, even if it's not necessarily a huge revenue generator yet. It's it's generating enough revenue to cover itself, which is the important thing so that Arbor Bridge isn't paying for it and our savings aren't paying for it anymore. It's me and one employee and all of our kind of infrastructure costs and anything else all paid for. And on top of that, the blog actually, you know, because there are speaking opportunities and we treat those like business revenue. So the speaking ends up paying a decent amount and that goes in. So we actually end up, it's actually profitable, even though it's a pretty small operation. There's also, I'm going to be doing a book next year. Actually, there's a book deal now. And I don't really think many people know that yet. We haven't really announced it yet. Congrats. Thank you. But so it's not, again, it's not like generating the money of like a huge business, but it's not nothing. And as I said, more so it's building value in another way. Plus the truth is, I mean, it's Waypoint is fun. Andrew, you know, and I both just like having Waypoint Y. It's like a fun thing to own. It's fun to be able to like have an opinion and get your voice out there. It's connected us to all kinds of people. 
And then the last thing I would say is it helps that like the revenue that is coming from the business side, at least it's, you know, most of that was built by the two of us. So by continuing to grow it, it's still growing kind of something that we both put in, you know, years of sweat to build. So there's all those kind of practical reasons. And then, like you said, for example, I supported the company for a while while he built a podcast app. And I wasn't thinking about, well, why is he not generating money yet? It was that this is a long picture. We want to work together for a long time. And part of the reason that it works is because we give each other the flexibility to like kind of live our own lives despite the partnership. So he knows I'm, I needed to do something in the arts and he kind of is like, okay, let's figure that out. And so in the big picture, that makes it really, you know, a really sustainable partnership. We kind of call it like the marriage model, right? Or like the reaper sower. And so, you know, how does that play into you guys like personal lives? Does this interfere with your wives or girlfriends? Cause I know Dan and I have talked about this before and we're both currently in relationships, but it's almost like you're in that kind of relationship, but it's a business relationship. We're definitely financially married. Like, again, if I do a book or a talk, that's business revenue, for example. The idea is that it's a simple way is everything either of us do just kind of goes into the joint kind of mission. We're definitely married in that regard. And then we're on the phone all the time and stuff. I have a girlfriend of the last five years. And when we started dating, she understood right away that like Andrew's my oldest friend and we're business partners and she and Andrew are good friends. So that that's it's really actually quite healthy. It really works. Like, you know, she's very supportive of the partnership and like, you know, fully gets it. And the, the key is that someone if someone gets it, they get why it's good for you and they understand that you know, it's based on a bunch of really good things, then it's it's pretty simple. Look, it's not always purely easy, right? But what we can always cling on to in tough times is the trust that this is a long-term thing, hopefully, and that we're going to like have each other's back. You know, we're going to support each other so that if he needs to do something to make himself happy, whatever that is, like, I'm, I'm down, let's figure it out. And and he had the same attitude about me. So I think it's like, if, because that's the attitude, it makes everything, I think, a lot easier. You know, knowing that, you know, it makes it a lot easier for one person to act like that to the other, knowing that it would be reciprocated. Why did Elon call you? And this is related to another question I have, which is like, how do you understand the cultural nerve that you've hit? You know, first of all, there's not many people spending 60 hours on, a, on an article. Usually when someone does that and they're good at what they do, like it makes the rounds. Like Michael Lewis writes an article, everyone's passing it around because he's awesome and he just spends, you know, months writing something. So I think just right away, just starting with that model is going to make you stand out a little bit. I pick a lot of topics that my particular type of reader is really interested in. And then unlike a lot of things they might read about it, I go into a lot of depth. So if someone who likes artificial intelligence, they might have read a bunch of articles, but like my article is 25,000 words. It was going to go into a lot of depth. So that's one thing. And then I think it's also just a certain style that, the you know, look, I think the style can annoy a lot of people. And then those people would, I'm sure, have visited the blog and not come back. But if I'm running a spaceship company, I don't think I'd ever think to call you. It makes so much sense in retrospect. But at the time, it's such a confusing call. The Elon call, I can tell you why it happened. That post I mentioned, the artificial intelligence post, Elon read that. I don't know how, but he read that. And I know that because he tweeted the first part. And then when I wrote the second part a couple of weeks later, he tweeted that like really like effusive tweets. And then someone from SpaceX emailed me and said he just emailed the post to the entire company and said that everyone was weird. So I was like, wow, he really liked the post. And he followed Waypoint on Twitter. He follows like 40 people on Twitter. So this was like, you know, super exciting, obviously, because, you know, Andrew and I are huge fans of his. And we assumed that would be the end of it. And then, but then he tweeted another post later. And I'm like, oh, God, he like reads the blog, you know. So we were like super excited. But again, we didn't expect it to go beyond that. And 
And then one day, you know, he got in touch and basically said, look, I really like your stuff. I think, you know, you go into a, a lot of depth and you, you have a lot of accuracy and you explain things well. I'm wondering if you want to write about any of the stuff that I'm involved in. Not really as even like a pitch. Just he was kind of encouraging me to write about the electric vehicle slash battery slash sustainable energy slash solar world and the space industry slash multi-planetary colonization world because the reason he's doing those companies is because he thinks those are the most important topics. There's a lot of nuance to the reasons he does what he does and, and to the argument for them. And the, the little articles that write about it, especially the ones that criticize it, they very rarely capture that nuance. And he doesn't have time to. You know, He would like to do a 15-hour monologue explaining it, but he doesn't have that time and he, that's not what the interview format is like. So I think he saw, when he read something like the artificial intelligence post, he said this would be a great thing to exist for these industries, you know, this kind of post. I think that's why he got in touch. And then I kind of at that point saw the opportunity to be like, well, I'd love to interview you and talk to you and talk to your executives. And he was like, yeah, totally. So delightful, super exciting. And so I ended up, you know, going to LA and Fremont and meeting with him. I met with him a bunch of times, actually. He really gave me a lot of time. He really, I think, put a lot of value on this project. And I met with a bunch of his executives and got to ask them about working with him, but also about the missions and the technical side. And then I read a ton and it was like a super fun project. I hope that he got what he wanted. I think that, you know, what he wanted was really thorough explainers that a lot of people read. I think that's what the series accomplished. It was four posts. Did he give you any feedback? Yeah, I actually got positive feedback from Elon Musk, which I think is very hard to come by. I was very proud of that. He was really positive. You know, so I let him read all four posts before I published them. I didn't have to have some like journalist rule. Like I was like, you can't like, I was like, look, if you don't like one of your quotes or if there's information, because, you know, I bet the deal was basically he was going to let me talk to anyone I wanted to at the companies, even people who don't have press approval because they haven't been like trained on the press side yet, knowing that I would allow them to check it out before I posted it. And that made it easy. So don't, don't have to stress about anything. And that was great. And the truth is they vetoed literally almost nothing at all. Like the tiniest little stat here and there that they didn't want their competitors to be aware of or something. But like almost nothing was changed. After both the Tesla and SpaceX post, I got really positive emails from him saying he really liked it. So very happy that he liked what came out. And it was like ended up being like a really fascinating and fun project for me. Have other people now started to reach out to you seeking the same kind of coverage? Because if I'm another a CEO of a similar company, I'm thinking, holy goodness, what an amazing thing to have exist about your company. Some people have definitely, you know, reached out either about their company or about an industry they are passionate about and said, like, you know, encouraging me to write about it. I'm still going to do the post I want to do. But what's nice is this helps me really get in the door because they can look and say, wow, like, you know, if Elon wanted to work with this guy, then maybe I should, too. Like, for example, I'm doing a big post on virtual reality coming up. I got to interview like all kinds of leaders in the VR world, like people that I probably wouldn't have had access to normally, including Mark Zuckerberg, who I got to sit down with for a long time, like and have a really good chat with. I think this was very helpful for that kind of thing. So access is super valuable if you're a blogger. And I think that that definitely helped. It's fascinating how you're moving in this direction, like focusing on these companies, these ideas that are changing the world. Recently, I think you kind of caught your first piece of flack that I've noticed, at least by writing about nations changing the world. I just want to jump in here real quick to mention two of Tim's recent posts, which kind of hinged on the election of Donald Trump, but were also about a whole lot more. In fact, Tim wrote up the second follow-up post because he had received so much criticism about the first. So if you want to check them out for yourself, they're called It's Going to Be Okay and It's Going to Be Okay Follow-Up. And we've linked to those posts in the notes for this episode. Okay, now let's get back to it. 
I sometimes wonder how long nations are for the Earth. You know, they're not necessarily that old in terms of how they operate currently. I kind of feel like we're, if you take a big step back as a big zoom out, I think we're in a bunch of like eras that are hard to see when you're in it. Like, I think we're in the fossil fuels era, which it'll look like later. I think we're in the nation state era. They only started, you know, a few hundred years ago and they might end in a few hundred years. So I think there's a lot of things like that. I think we also might still be in the dark ages. Unfortunately, I think like people in a thousand years might totally (laughs) look at now and they're like, look, we're in a religious war. There's a legitimate caliphate forming in one part of the world. There's racism and poverty and wars still. World War One and Two were in this in the last like hundred years. That is unbelievably like primitive stuff. I think they're gonna look at that and be like, yeah, of course, the age of like wars and religion and nations. It's the dark ages still, unfortunately. We're a bunch of primitive tribal animals kind of still in a very obvious way to me. So yeah, I think that's definitely, you know, I think something that could disappear. Is Tim of Yesteryears moving to L.A. surprised of Tim today? He might be surprised that like, I think he was in doubt. And I think he knew he could do good things if he put his mind to it in the creative world. But I think he was in doubt whether he would be able to actually conquer his like productivity issues to do it. And I think he would be surprised in a good way that, oh, look, you're 35 and you're doing something creative full time. I think he would be very pleasantly surprised and happy about that. I think he would be a little bit dismayed to be like, wow, all the same problems, huh? From when we were 22, all the same problems. You're still still dealing with those, huh? We've noticed that in our friendship group in our 20s, we all like had optimism that we would change for the better. And it just, we've all turned into like extreme versions of our younger selves. <laughs> yeah, like, like literally like me when I was 10 is kind of exactly <laughs> what the current situation is. It's just like, I like learned to like do some things better, but basically it's, if you take a bunch of 10 year olds, like that's the people right there. They're the people. Thanks for joining us, Tim. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Yeah. Thanks for having me on guys. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We're going to be posting the show notes to everything mentioned in this app as well as some of our favorite Wait But Why articles at tropicalmba.com slash wait but why. And I'm just going to say the same thing to you now that I said after we got off the phone with Tim, which is, well, that was fun. That was fun. Sometimes I get nervous before these interviews, you know. You don't know the person that well, and you don't know how it's going to go. I mean, you do a lot of research. Like I read so much about Tim and watched him on the YouTubes and all that. And I don't know, I wasn't sure what to get. I was just really engaged. Like I could have kept talking to Tim for you know much, much longer. So but that's not a really an insight. It doesn't really wrap up the episode, but that's how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason not to be nervous when talking to somebody like Tim is because he's a thinker. And I think you're a thinker. And on this show, we try to be thinkers, if that makes sense. And so it's like you always kind of have something to talk about with these people that are willing to kind of drudge through the depths of these thoughts and these topics. And that's what makes it so you can talk for six hours at a time because it's everything is worth exploring. That's fair. Because he wasn't trying to be somebody for us or necessarily or get us to believe something or whatever. He was just willing to settle into any question and give us a thoughtful response. And it makes it really fun to have a conversation with somebody like that. 
Exactly. And if I look at the friends that I have and the friends that you have, and you know, there's a lot of crossover there, that's who these people are. They're people that are willing to explore topics in great detail, regardless of your understanding really on the topic, because a lot of times you're asking questions and learning, but you're never trying to be an expert on anything, right? It's like you're always just trying to be in discovery mode. And that seems to be, maybe that's the secret why Tim's developed such an absolutely massive audience when a lot of the article topics, he's not writing about profound things. It's like the process, like watching him think through something is itself compelling and hilarious at times. So even if that's something like, who could write an interesting article about procrastination nowadays, you know, hasn't Lifehacker, you know, sorted through that issue or, (laughs) but just the way to watch him think through an article is the most interesting bit. It is for me too. And thank you so much, Tim, for being on the show. Absolutely. This one will be at tropicalmba.com slash wait, but why? And we'll be back next Thursday morning. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.